the way to actually build up like a real sort of infrastructure for conservative resistance begins in red states. And that means doing what people like Ron DeSantis are doing, which is actually making Florida a model of what good red state governance looks like. Welcome back to The Kevin Roberts Show. We always have really important American patriots on this show. We have one today, and that's really special to say because my friend, Nate Hockman, who's a staff writer at National Review, is not even a quarter of a century old, and we're already calling him an American patriot, which means many of you who are younger than me get to follow Nate for many decades, maybe even a century. With all of that said, let me thank you, Nate, for making time for this. Hey, thanks for having me, Kevin. I think the bar for American Patriot must have lowered since the last time we chatted. Not at all. I'm it's, it's, it's heartfelt. It really is. <laughs> Not that I'm, you know, should be the standard bearer of, of whatever it constitutes being a patriot. But I really, very seriously, on behalf of all of us at Heritage, and I think the vast majority of us in the conservative movement, I'm grateful for the work you do. Well, I appreciate that. Thanks. What I mean by that specifically is from what I do each day is that thankfully there are a lot of good men and women who are willing to do policy work who are conservatives, different flavors of conservatives, as we will talk about. Mm -hmm. There are elected officials, great men and women, differences of opinion there. But we don't really have a movement if we don't have writers like you who are willing to just speak the truth. And sometimes we're going to quibble. It's probably all we're going to do. I think we largely see the world the same way, although that's okay if, if we didn't. But we have to have sort of that literary journalistic side of the movement in order for it to develop the momentum that it is, I think, once again, developing. No, I totally agree. I mean, obviously, it's self-serving of me to, to think that. But I'm but giving you the license. To I know. Just run it's with really it. great. So far, this is this interview is going you know fantastic for, for conservative writers. Um, but I think, I mean, the conservative movement was built by – writers and intellectuals, right? I mean, there's obviously, you know, a, a number of different sort of grassroots phenomenons you can talk about, but the the conservative movement, at least the modern American conservative movement, starting off in the 1950s, began as an intellectual project. So I think, while obviously all of the policy work is crucially important, the core of what it means to be an American conservative has always been defined to a certain extent by conversations like this one. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm happy to get to be at least a small part of it. Well, I always like to start with someone's personal story. And, you know, if you were a Southerner, this would be even mm. better. But you're just from Oregon. I know. It's my no, sorry. Friend. I shouldn't say that. But <laughs> I did. No, I, all, all sarcasm aside, I think a lot of conservatives, when they first learned about you, they probably read an article or two or five and said, man, this, this guy's good. And they realized, again, all kidding aside and not trying to be condescending toward age, <laughs> you're a young guy and you're smart. You're clearly well-schooled. But you're from Oregon. How in the wide world of sports do you know anything about being a conservative? Well, being Haven't from you Oregon, gotten that question first? Yeah. Before? Being from Oregon, I think, sort of taught me what it meant to be a conservative because you can see how, you know, awfully, horrifically wrong utopian left-wing politics can go. I mean, I think Portland right now particularly is a case study for that. Um, Oregon might go red. This this election cycle. I mean, I don't know if this this interview is going to be broadcast. It'll be that, it'll so. be after the election, but you know, considering that it's Oregon, it might take them a couple of years to. Yeah, come there through, might be right? some plumbing issues in Portland. I, I, I'm <laughs> going to stop eventually because actually, I think Oregon's great, and there are a lot of conservatives there. Mm -hmm. Just in case people don't know. Well, and I think cities like Portland make conservatives. I mean, that was my story at least. I, I love my parents dearly, but they're liberal Democrats. They're lifelong Democrats, uh, and my brother and I both became conservative growing up in Portland. And I cannot tell you the amount. I'm sure it's still a minority, obviously, but I get messages 
every single week from young people, particularly young men who I grew up with in Portland, who are telling me that they're becoming much more right wing, much more conservative, just because of their experiences in Portland. Because I think a lot of what the left talks about in terms of its sort of political worldview and vision, often it sounds good in the abstract, right? This isn't a particularly new point, but you can see the real world material effects of those policies and ultimately of utopian thinking in the complete degradation of Portland, which was a great city when I was born there, by the way. For all, it was always very left-wing, but it's sort of lovable, crunchy, hippie left-wing. Now Portland's a dangerous city, uh, and it's a city that's falling apart. It's really on its last legs. And that really, for me and for a lot of other young people, I think growing up in Portland, uh, it forces a certain amount of reckoning with, you know, how did we get there? And at least for me, that that leads you to conservative conclusions. A lot of people say that, and it's interesting that you you said that in reference especially to men of your generation. We'll come back to that before the end of our conversation. But I just wanted to make the observation that twofold. First, Portland used to be a great city. And Secondly, it reminds me of my adopted home city of Austin, mm. which is maybe five or 10 years behind Portland's demise, but it's very much on, on track. And just for audience members who don't know, quite literally, quite explicitly, for years, certain members of the Austin City Council, the mayor of Austin, who hopefully won't be mayor much longer, have tried to copy Portland. Mm -hmm. And they're copying not just the ridiculous policies that you knew when you were a much younger man were, were probably misguided, but now you know have actually affected human flourishing, human freedom. And it's not hyperbole to say, have cost people their lives. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, abs I mean, I think Portland and Austin have a lot in common culturally and politically. I actually think you're talking about Austin copying Portland. I think Portland ripped off, off Austin with the – there's the Keep Portland Weird bumper sticker everywhere. And I think that originated with Keep Austin Weird. But there's an enormous amount of similarities between the sort of cultural and, and, and sort of political worldview of the people who govern those cities. The advantage that Austin has obviously is it is situated in a red state with a Republican state legislature and a Republican governor who can at least, I would hope, pump the brakes on the, the sort of most far-left excesses. Portland has supermajority Democrat legislature and you know hasn't had hasn't elected a, a Democratic or Republican governor since 1982 or something, right? So that's, I think, Portland and Oregon overall are sort of a, a warning of just how bad things can get. And I would hope, you know, the good people of Texas would intervene before Austin gets that bad, but we'll see. <laughs> I've, I've been party to a couple of those legislative interventions. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but it, it really does, those underscored the, the accuracy of what you said about having a conservative leadership at the state level willing to preempt some of the ridiculous city policies, especially when it came to defunding the police. Yeah. This is a, a real aside, but it's it, it, it's fun. And there's a side of, of writing legislation that's fun. And one of my favorite ideas among innovative conservative policy ideas is to turn Austin into a capital municipal district mm. that's run by the state of Texas. And often, and this is a phrase that that you and, and your generation of conservatives have perfected, conservatives ought to wield the power that they have. That's something that governors like Greg Abbott, who obviously are, are a different generation, but conservative, I think are warming up to because of the leadership that younger conservatives have shown. Don't respond to that just yet, mm. because I want to ask you, how is it that you got to do what you're now doing as the staff writer of National Review? Was it was there a particular time when you were in high school or college where you said, I want to be a leading conservative writer? This is what I want to do with my life. <laughs> well, I think it was it, it, it was sort of 
it was accidental in a certain sort of way in that I went on from a very left-wing city in Portland, Oregon to a very left-wing college campus. And I was still, you know, freshman, sophomore year of college, I was, you know, having been raised liberal for a long time, I still sort of held on to that political identity, you know, to sort of be like, you know, okay, I'm a liberal, but I disagree with 20% of what liberals think. I'm a liberal, I disagree with 30% of li what liberals think. And you get to 80% and you eventually have to admit yourself to yourself you're a conservative. Um, but I, being a young, naive college student, thought that it would be completely fine to have those debates in public on my college campus. So I started a magazine. It wasn't a conservative magazine. It was a magazine dedicated to sort of free speech and, you know, marketplace of ideas. And the backlash was so over the top. I mean, you had activists. It was a very sort of standard campus conservative experience uh, that it got covered in some national conservative publications. And it, you know, I, I started writing for national conservative publications that way. And one thing led to another. And all of a sudden, I'm, you know, writing for National Review and talking to the president of the Heritage Foundation in, in Washington, D.C. a few years later. But there was no point at which I think I decided I wanted to be, you know, a conservative writer. I knew that I loved this country. I knew that I thought we were in serious trouble and I felt like I had an obligation to do what little I could to help. Um, but the the path to becoming a conservative writer specifically just started with saying conservative things on campus and uh, responding to the backlash that, that came from that. And, and as trite as it sounds, I just think about the hundreds, if not a few thousand conversations I've had being a professor and teacher and headmaster and college president, those things with students. Where they they asked me, well, well, Dr. Roberts, what did what professional advice do you have for me? And and the trite part is, invariably, I would say and still say, follow your gut, follow your passion. It sounds like you were following your passion, which was a diagnosis of something that America had lost. You didn't ascribe a particular ideological label to it. You just knew that something was happening and it was bad. And interestingly, it led you to one of the most important institutions in the conservative movement, National Review. That's right. Yeah. And it was, again, it was, a, to your point, I think that was very well put, it was, it was sort of an intuitive thing, right? It began with just these formative experiences on campus where I knew from the very beginning, even when I still thought of myself as a liberal, that the sort of campus ideology, campus activism, that was clearly insane. That was clearly wrong, right? And you learn that pretty quickly when you sort of bring up basic objections to basic sort of campus activist pieties and there was no answer to it. And the answer was, you know, shut up, they explained, right? But then the way that sort of builds out into a larger sort of political worldview nationwide is you see that campus ideology seeping out into every single one of our other institutions. So the sort of so-called great awakening, right, where all of our institutions increasingly became taken over by this campus ideology, that happened while I was on college campuses. So it was a very weird disorienting experience seeing first democratic politicians and then big business leaders, you know, and then, you know, big tech, Silicon Valley, et cetera, all beginning to talk the way that the kid, you know, with purple hair in my sociology class talked, right? And that was this incredible sort of, um, you know, political flashpoint for me was realizing that the fights that I was having on campus were inevitably going to be the fights that conservatives were facing nationwide. I mean, they are the generational challenge, I think, of our time. So that sort of just, that transition seemed pretty natural at that point. And implicit in that summary, this just occurred to me is, is a certain optimism you have. And I know you well enough to know that you don't engage in hollow optimism in the same way that I don't. In fact, we both rather abhor that, right? Because we've got real work to do. But it's interesting. What's making me think about that is I spend a lot of time with conservatives who are older than I am. And they might be supporters to heritage or elected officials, for that matter, in our movement. And they express often a concern about their children or grandchildren, if they're old enough, 
that there there aren't any institutions that will inculcate a certain conservatism among them. But it sounds to me, based on your experience, that while this is not universal in your generation by any stretch, you're saying there's hope if in, if in fact we can just present the data in a kind of a fair way to people your age. Yeah, I would hope so. I think the, it, even more powerful than that is just – you know, the left is sort of on campus in particular, sort of doing our work for us better than we ever mm. could. So the experience that I had and my little brother had, who also became a conservative uh, in Portland and, and then on college campuses, it's it's very difficult to measure how big this phenomenon is because it doesn't really show up in the polling data. But just anecdotally from the messages I get all the time, the conversations that I have all the time. And again, it's particularly young men, um, but it's not just young white men. It's young men of, of a variety of different races are are asking similar questions because – the, the total lack of sort of uh, diversity of ideas on campus means that the official channels that would usually in a previous generation sort of explain to them the liberal worldview patiently and say, well, this is what you should think. Those You can't have those conversations anymore and they look elsewhere, right? They look to conservative commentators. They start reading uh, you know, conservative online publications and you have this weird sort of right below the surface, rightwards movement of a lot of young people from left-wing backgrounds uh, to, towards the right because – they know intuitively something is wrong with what they are receiving on campus and they don't have any professors that they can go to and talk to about it. So they go to conservatives instead. So our job, I think, is just to be be there when they do start asking those questions and give them good good answers. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's quite a bit of wisdom to just being present mm -hmm. and being present in a way that um, is engaging, appealing, uh, perhaps not condemning, although that, that shouldn't make us cowards when it comes to speaking about the truth. I do have to ask this before we we move on because I want to ask you next about Washington D.C. And, mm. and life here as a young conservative. What do your parents say? I mean, you, you, I'm just imagining here we are on the cusp of holiday time, <laughs> and I'm imagining you know what's what's Thanksgiving dinner like at the Hockman home. You know, I have actually have a great relationship with my parents, but part of the the sort of not a relevance of politics, but the, the fact that politics doesn't get in the way of our, our relationship is the fact that they only have two sons, the only two children, they're both sons, and they're both conservative. So if they want to have a relationship with us, you know, they better dang well be able to sort of have conversations with conservatives. And they've done a fantastic job. I mean, my mom's pretty apolitical. My dad is, uh, you know, relatively moderate Democrat, but a partisan Democrat. Uh, but he's interested in what his sons think. You know, I haven't converted him yet. Uh, you know, knock on wood eventually that I will. Yet. I'll let you know, uh, you know, if we get him voting Republican. But for the most part, it's actually really fun. You know, it's the there aren't very many healthy sort of cross ideological conversations happening in America today. But uh, our Thanksgiving get togethers, they actually exist. So which is a good thing. No, that's good. That, there's an important lesson. It mm -hmm. reminds me of of uh, the, the the rule that my wife and I keep with holiday dinners. You know, the, the adage, you're not supposed to talk about politics, religion. <laughs> Anytime we have uh, dinner guests over, our kids will let them know. Those are the only two things I was going to say, about. yeah. That's one of the things I love about D.C., actually. It's the only thing you talk about is politics. That's right. We'll religion. sprinkle in some football yeah. or country music there, maybe <laughs> maybe a little food talk. Well, let's talk about D.C. You know, I've, I've been here uh, about a year. And one of the many pleasant surprises, and there have been many pleasant surprises, about at least working in D.C., is the presence, speaking of presence, of so many young conservatives, you among them, mm -hmm. but dozens, if not a few hundred of them. Obviously, a lot of them work at Heritage. A lot of them work at other aligned organizations. But it's something that's, frankly, inspiring for those of us who are older. What's it like from your perspective, just from a social standpoint? By that, I mean day-to-day, -day, especially for someone in the audience who might be thinking, well, I want to 
I want to give DC a run, but is it a place where I could actually exist somewhat happily? You know, as a conservative, it's actually fantastic, which is not something that's an answer that, you know, if you had fat, you know, rewinded a, a year and a half to when I first came to the city, I'd be surprised to hear myself saying that, right? Because you hear about how awful DC is. And in some ways, you know, at a system wide level, it is awful. Yeah, this is not an endorsement of the mayor or no, city council. No, I think, you know, Myrtle Bowser has some, you know, some serious, some serious issues to work on. Uh, but for the the sort of conservative subset of DC, and it's a very insular world. I'm sure you've experienced this too. Um, DC, it's it's funny because it's a very blue city. I think it's one of the bluest cities in the country. But if you come here as a conservative, you're plugged into this weird netherworld where you're pretty much only hanging out with conservatives, and they are by and large, in my experience, wonderful people. Often very faithful people, very family oriented. You know, uh, and and serious about doing something about the problems the country is facing. It's not just boilerplate cliches. I really have had a wonderful experience with the, the conservative community here. And it's a real community. Like there's actually a real sort of uh, network of conservatives across the, the spectrum of ages who have people over for dinner, you know, and go to church together, right? And have conversations like this. And it's, it's, it's odd because DC from the outsider's perspective has all these problems, but there is this weird sort of carve out of a conservative section of DC, which is by all accounts, a pretty healthy, you know, positive community. It, it is, you know, th this will be the, uh, the, the, the John senior devotee coming out. <laughs> Remember I was president of Wyoming Catholic college often considered for him, you know, posthumously his greatest achievement. Uh, there's a counterculture here. And the counterculture is willing to fight. Mm -hmm. It's evidenced by your work, the work of, of so many of your colleagues. But it's one that at its core has a hopefulness about the future. Again, not a, a hollow optimism. America's in very difficult circumstances, politically, socially, culturally, economically. But there's a hopefulness probably born out of, of faith, of, of all varieties here in D.C. among young conservatives, but also born out of a real commitment to do the hard work, the heavy lifting that previous generations have maybe been willing to do but didn't really succeed with. And so maybe we'll take this as the opportunity for you to, to give some advice to some of your peers, at least in terms of age, maybe even people a little bit older who might hear you or me or some of our friends say, in the next friendly presidential administration, we need you in D.C. at least for a few years. What advice do you give them? Well, first of all, I would say give it a shot. I mean, my sort of cynical view of D.C. coming into it was proving completely wrong as a conservative. And I think what you're saying is is absolutely true in terms of the the fact that the, the conservatives who are in D.C., you sort of have to have, if not in optimism. I mean, conservatives are always pretty pessimistic. It's our it's politics our are nature. based on a pessimistic view of human nature. Um, but to be a conservative in D.C., at least I would hope, and this has been my experience, you have to think – that this country is capable of being saved and that we are actually capable of doing things in DC. We, the city can still work in a way that's positive for America. Um, and that's an incredibly invigorating environment to be a part of because any conservative who's paying attention to the trends in America, it, it, we all have days where we have this sort of, man, is, is, is everything too far gone? Is there anything we can really do? And being surrounded by people who are actually really committed every day to waking up, working long hours to actually do something about it, it's it's an incredible environment to be in. So I would just say, get here. You know, summer internship, there's a lot of, you know, conservative avenues to, to spend time in DC. But spend some time here, you know, make friends, get plugged into the community. And uh, we need sort of young, vigorous patriots to actually 
be doing the work. And you don't have to stay in D.C. Lord knows we need a lot of work on, on the state level. But I think spending at least a little bit of time here getting a sense of the flow and the sort of way the city works is important for anyone who wants to work in politics. Yeah, it reminds me of of my closest friend, I guess in, in politics, certainly my closest friend in Congress, Chip Roy. Mm. We were working together at Texas Public Policy Foundation when he made the decision to run for Congress, which I supported and as a, as a friend. And, and I said, Chip, why U.S. Congress and not, say, the Texas Senate? And he said, Kevin, because even for someone focused on federalism, as, as he, he was and is, the actions in D.C., and at least for some small amount of time, we'll see how long he serves, you got to know how it works mm-hmm. in order to go back home, wherever that is, to, in his case, if, if he were to do state-based work, know what you have to fix at the federal level so the state-based work yes. becomes more possible. I think that's the lesson you're saying for someone who wants to come here and work either for an organization or, for that matter, in the next friendly presidential administration in one of the agencies. At least I started using the verb tithing. You know, Tithe a few years of your life to this great republic while we're in the midst of saving it. 100%. And you know, especially now, I would love at some point to restore – federalism in America the way that our founders envisioned it. But for now, that's not the America we live in. But there's a lot that you can and should do in D.C. to help get there, right? And also, you know, a variety of other issues that are decided in D.C. The I think because conservatives are correctly often hostile to the federal government, the thinking is that there's nothing we can or should be doing consistent with conservative principles in the federal government. But there's an enormous amount that we can be doing. And a whole lot of it actually has to do with holding back the federal leviathan so that states have breathing room. That's all crucially important work. And it's not to denigrate the work that people are doing in red states, which I think is crucially, crucially important. But that can only happen if you at least have a baseline level of friendliness in D.C. to allow that stuff to happen. If you've watched what the Biden administration has been doing trying to go after someone like Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida. It's a perfect example of why you need conservatives in D.C. Because Lord knows that a lot of people in the Democratic Party are not going to just accept, just lie back and accept red states actually trying to sort of build up their own infrastructures. And you need conservatives there who are actually capable of at least holding back that sort of overweening federal interventionist attitude so that people like Greg Abbott in Texas or Ron DeSantis in Florida can actually do something. So let's look into your crystal ball here a little bit. As conservatives, it's in our nature to do a lot of worst case scenario thinking. And as we sit here, the midterm election results are not yet known. They're imminent. But I'm just going to presume that they went at least reasonably well for conservatives, not just capital R Republicans, but what's far more important for you and me, conservatives. We, we need conservative policy in this in this city, not necessarily partisan policy. What's the best case scenario for America this decade as you look at the next election cycles? Obviously, 2024 is looming, but key elections that will happen at the state level across the country, most importantly, at least as it, as it relates to, to my priorities, conservative policies. That's a big question. I know. Um, and, I, and I know it's everyone's job at Heritage to sort of actually answer that question. So I, I don't want I get to asked of... that so much. I just enjoyed asking <laughs> someone else. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I think, I mean, there's, there's a lot of different sort of um, avenues through which America needs fixing, right? So there's the basic sort of good government level, which is that Red states, I mean all states, but red states in particular need breathing room. So we need to have people, again, people like Ron DeSantis and I think increasingly Greg Abbott um, in Florida, hopefully uh, Carrie Lake in in Arizona as well, have an understanding of the role that red states are going to play in any serious American renewal. 
um, you know, the federal bureaucracy, uh, for, for all of what a certain sort of genre of conservative says, they're never going to be the right's friend. Um, and the, the idea that you can sort of populate the federal bureaucracy and then wield it to, to your, your own sort of ends, like that's, to me, that's a pipe dream. And I also just think it's sort of anti-constitutional. Uh, the way to actually build up like a real sort of infrastructure for conservative resistance begins in red states. And that means doing what people like Ron DeSantis are doing, which is actually making Florida a model of what good red state governance looks like. And what that looks like is, you know, a, a variety of different things. I mean, it's obviously basic sort of quality of life issues like low crime, good schools, uh, you know, flourishing economy, all the things that are the basic building blocks of, of, of human flourishing. But it's also the education system is huge. I think that's honestly where America is going to live or die in the next generation. And I know I'm preaching to the choir for former professor. A, a, a plus so far. <laughs> um, but but the the really, I mean, I'm having spent some time on a college campus recently, I have a very sort of vivid um, experience with how poisonous what we're teaching our children is right now, whether it's gender and sexuality or critical race theory, 1619 Project view of American history, all of that stuff needs to be removed from the classroom and you also need to have like a renewed civics education as well where you're actually teaching students about the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution again. So that's the sort of cultural fight. Uh, and then I think, you know, the, just the basic sort of being a red state that serves as a beacon for people who are running from blue states I think has been a major sort of PR for conservatism over the course of the last few years. The reason that California and New York are just hemorrhaging populations and they're all moving to states like Florida and Texas is a perfect example of what you actually can achieve if you govern a state well. And I think that is going to – the sort of great sort that is happening right now is the way that you build power for conservative policies nationwide. I think that point that you you just made, which, which some people may not fully appreciate – is the most important thing happening in conservatism right now. And there are a lot of really important and good things happening. And it is that we like to use the phrase Overton window here mm -hmm. at Heritage. And the way we apply it, as most conservative policy organizations do, is what can how can we move the, the realm of possibility of policy solutions closer or, or farther into the American right? But what I'm talking about is an Overton window of what is required of a conservative governor in a red or purplish yes. red state that I think – and, and I won't name specific states or candidates because I have to be careful about steering away from endorsements. Mm -hmm. But I'm thinking about in my native state of Louisiana, there's a gubernatorial race that will come up next year because it's got an odd off-year election. And whoever those candidates are, they're going to have to govern more conservatively than they would have had to yes. a generation ago. Mm -hmm. That's a real achievement by the conservative movement because if we can keep the United States from, from just deteriorating socially and collapsing economically in the meantime, and I think we have at least a decent chance <laughs> of doing so, then that – those are the next generation of our leaders, right? And you couple that with what's going on in policy and in journalism. We really ought to have some hopefulness about this country if we can get over this hump of the 2020s. Right. And I also think the sort of miraculous thing about what you've seen about the sort of leading Republican governors over the course of the last few years is it shows that you actually can do it, right? I think especially for those of us who are social conservatives who have just watched – 
you know, I've, I've lost basically every single cultural fight over the course of the last few decades with a couple small blips. Social conservatives have been fighting a rear guard action in America since at least the 1990s. Feels, arguably feels since the that 1960s. way. Right. But, but the, the wonderful thing about <clears throat> this huge slate of often parent-led backlash in education and then you also have you know the fight against transgenderism, <clears throat> protecting women's sports, critical race theory, all this stuff and Republican governors tapping into that energy, people like Glenn Youngkin – you know, riding it all the way to victory in a purple-blue state, it shows that not only can Republicans and conservatives run and win on cultural issues, but you can actually not just stem the tide but roll it back. And that is an enormous sign of optimism. Again, not hollow optimism but an actual testament to the fact that the, the cultural fights that we're having, they're not just inevitable left-wing victories. Conservatives can and should be logging victories in all of these cultural fights and we now have a model for what that looks like. And to your point, I think it should be a litmus test for Republican governors going forward. And I'm, I'm curious, in addition to <clears throat> what seems to be this cautious optimism that we both have regarding conservative governance at the state level, as we analyze institutions, which has been a real focus of your work, even if we concede that most institutions, perhaps all public institutions in the United States, are, are gone – that there is there's enough evidence of <clears throat> universities of K through 12 schools of institutions of other kinds that that are emerging that have been founded that are are helping us turn the corner in other words to to put that concisely are you as optimistic about the revitalization of american institutions as you seem to be about conservatism in the political sphere nationally uh no i think i maintain a certain amount of sort of healthy cynicism about national institutions at least for the next decade or so, right? The you know history is never pre-written. It's not inevitable. Who knows what opportunities will present themselves? Conservatives should maintain a certain amount of vigilance and be ready to take the opportunity if it presents itself. But this, to me, is why red state governance is so important because the project, as I see it, for the next generation of conservatives is a at the federal level to basically hold back the federal leviathan and give red states breathing breathing room. But then at the red state level, really aggressively focus on building alternative institutions. And that can be an alternative education system. It can be uh, certainly an alternative sort of economic model that isn't sort of just uh, basically about central planning and, and you know, different interest groups. Um, it, it, it obviously sort of a criminal justice system that actually works for, for normal law-abiding citizens. All of that stuff, it the, the a certain amount of the sort of conservative pessimism that we hear about national institutions I think is warranted, at least for the foreseeable future. But that does not mean that America inevitably is over. It means that there's an enormous opportunity for alternative institutions and that I think begins at the state level. And and I happen to agree with that. By the way, can you think of any – this is not a quiz. I'm just curious. I've been asking people this question the last month. Can you think of any public institution in the United States that has not been captured by the left? You know, it's a good question. I'm used to rattling off all the ones that have been captured by the left, but I can't think of um, a major one. There are obviously sort of small sectors of big business that are still at least not aggressively and actively and publicly left wing. Uh, my last sort of athletic league that I would cite as – I used to cite as being conservative-friendly was NASCAR, but I think that we've lost them as well. So I don't know. Do you have a good answer? No, I don't. I mean I – and I, I try not to sound so pessimistic, but it, it, it seems true. I happen to think, especially having started a K-12 through school and, and led one of the reactionary conservative colleges uh, of which there are now many mm -hmm. since the founding of Wyoming Catholic College, that we're going to, to – 
turn the corner. We're not there yet. We just kind of have to be patient over the next decade. But what I, I wanted to ask you was perhaps the last official conversation we had, you with your National Review staff writer hat on and <laughs> me with my heritage hat on, you were writing what ended up being a wonderful, though troubling story about baseball, mm-hmm. which is, for those of us who are Americans, a very important institution. It seems as if even Major League Baseball has been captured. Well, and also the most conservative of the big three, right? I mean, I think that's an important thing to note. Not only is, is baseball America's pastime, but it has of the NFL, the NBA, and, and, and MLB, it has the most conservative fan base. It has the most fans with more republic, the most fan bases that are more Republican than Democratic. But the story that I wrote, this report, was about the fact that the vast majority of the franchise in, in MLB are either directly funding or promoting groups that perform or promote oftentimes actively you know provide the drugs for sex change surgeries for minors often very very young children you know prepubescent um, that is not a position or an initiative that is favored by the average MLB fan or even the average American it's a very radical minoritarian left-wing position but I think this is the reason understandably for the certain amount of like conservative pessimism about our national institutions because it used to be, I mean, the sort of there's the catchphrase "go woke, go, you know, go broke," right? And I think there's a blind spot there because it used to be that sort of conservatives thought all these big business institutions were on our side because Americans were conservative and they couldn't go too far left, become too activist because they lose their consumer base. And you see something like MLB doing this, which almost certainly should sort of rationally alienate the vast majority of their fan base. It shows that they're actually not thinking just in terms of profit motive anymore, at least directly, and they're thinking much more in terms of pleasing this small radical activist fringe, which has captured not only MLB boardrooms, but the boardrooms of most major institutions in our country. Um, So it's an incredibly disturbing report, but I think it's really important because it exposes that even a lot of these institutions, which have deep, deep roots in red America, are often hostile to the values of the normal people in those countries or in those those states. Um, And I think that's one of the reasons that conservatives have to be really vigilant about pushing back on this stuff. So let's let's dial back a little bit from that, although we could talk about institutional life for hours. And let me ask you a question about the future of the conservative movement. We've covered the country, talked about optimism. We were chatting a little bit before we pressed record that no topic is off limits. Mm-hmm. Uh, people can disagree with the official heritage position. The, the point of this podcast is to have a conversation. And so with, with that complete artistic license, if you will, Nate, <laughs> What are the two or three biggest pain points in American conservatism today that, in your judgment, will need to be at least decently resolved internally for us to wield the political power we will need to wield in order to take the country back? So I should caveat this by saying that I think – again, this is my sort of moderate optimism – is I think the conservative movement is moving in in the right direction in really real ways – and I think your leadership at Heritage Foundation, Kevin didn't pay me to say this. I did not. Uh, and this is just water. Think, it's not even I good know. bourbon. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's really from the bottom of my heart. I think your leadership at Heritage is a good example of this. The, 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 it's fashionable in a lot of conservative circles to sort of bash on conservatism, Inc., the conservative sure. establishment or whatever. With some good reason. With some way. good reason. But I also think it doesn't give a lot of conservative institutions, legacy conservative institutions, which one, one of which I work for, enough credit for actually trying, perhaps slowly – to adapt to some of the real insights of the last five or six or seven years. And you see the conservative movement moving in the right direction. So with that very long sort of preamble, I think one of the major ones is a 
is sort of unnecessary uh, or ill-advised deference to business. There's a chamber of the Republican Party, and this has become part of the sort of official conservative ideology, which really does think that the business of America is business. Uh, and if you look at what something like the Chamber of Commerce stands for today, it's very clear that they are actually at odds with conservatives on a whole lot of things. We might still share some basic priorities in terms of you know, decentralized market economy, et cetera. We do not share the same priorities when it comes to immigration, certainly. The Chamber of Commerce, actually Chip Roy, this is a quote from him, they were standing down at the border um, with a help wanted sign, basically. That's the Chamber of Commerce's position on, on immigration and on increasingly on, on cultural issues. As you see, our institutions become captured by this really radical and anti-American ideology, whether it's gender or race or anything else, um, it, they are actively using their concentrated economic power to advance that cultural vision throughout the country. Conservatives cannot abide that. And our deference to business has to end when that radicalism begins. So I think that is also part of a larger sort of blind spot where there's a certain kind of sort of Burkean institutionalist conservatism, which wants to defer to institutions in general because they are suspicious with good historic precedent of the kind of burn it down anti-institutionalist impulse. And that burn it down impulse does go too far sometimes. But it's also true that our institutions across the board, as we've been talking about, are in serious need of a real shakeup, right? And I think this is why I would sort of somewhat reluctantly call myself a populist because I think that conservatives now in our current environment need to stand for the American people and against a lot of our legacy institutions. And thinking in those terms leads to a lot of different policy conclusions. But it really is a reorientation of a worldview, not just when it comes to economics, but when it comes to the way that we approach education policy, crime, you know, a variety of different sort of policy areas. It has implications everywhere. What a wonderful response. Really appreciate that and probably agree with, with all of it. I want to probe on one issue, and this is not a put you on the spot kind of question because that's not the purpose of this podcast. It's, it's just genuine curiosity. Heritage is is working on this, and and and, it's, and this has been a challenge for us, although one we will overcome because of our commitment to be part of this new movement moving forward, and it's so-called family policy. Mm. And it, it seems to me, just sort of put our cards on the table, that you know, Heritage has this, depending on someone's view, famous or infamous one-voice policy, which I think a lot of people expected me to change when I got here, and I love it. Uh, you know, the organization I was leading before modeled its own policy off of Heritage's. And the reason I love it is we go out and ask for donations from people, high net worth people, people with no net worth, supported by hundreds of thousands of Americans to do what? To effect policy change. How can you do that if you have multiple voices on one policy? That's it, a lead up, my own preamble to the question that when it comes to family policy, our scholars, I, myself, are feeling the tensions in the movement of wanting a government that's very limited, of wanting to honor the dignity of work, of expecting all Americans, regardless of their circumstances, to pull themselves up from the bootstraps. And yet, and I'm certainly squarely in this latter camp, those of us who are really worried about the birth rate, mm -hmm. really worried about marriage as an institution, and trying to put all of that together in the policy space 
in a way that guides first federal policymakers because that's where all the relevant policies are. That's where most of the money is spent. Have you given, and we're going to come out with something in 2023. I don't know what it is yet because the job of policy scholars here is to, is to wrestle and work through that, which they're doing beautifully. Have you thought about that at all? I don't know if you've written on it. Do you have any advice for us or for the movement about where we land on all of those issues? Well, I'm excited to read <clears throat> the Heritage the Heritage Policy Paper. I, I've written about it a lot, actually. I think it's a really important issue. And I'm, I'm sort of out there on family policy in that I think what people like Rubio and Romney and a variety of other Republican senators are working on is great. I would like to see them go even further. I mean, I think actually some kind of paid family leave is, is necessary as well. Conservatives ultimately we believe that there are certain basic things that are the building blocks of human flourishing. Limited government is one of those things, and our constitutional order does a really great job of, of ensuring that, I would say, the best in the history of the world. Um, but families are also a crucially, crucially important part of that. Limited government is not going to last for long if you have all these citizens who are emaciated individuals who are basically married to the government instead of you know one another and having children, right? Civil society is what holds up the possibility of a constitutional republic. So there are a lot of things the federal government is doing right now that it shouldn't be doing. Family policy, to me, seems to be one of the obvious things that it should be doing, particularly now where there's a real crisis of the American family. And there are conservative ways to do that. And there are a lot of people who are far more qualified than I am to talk about the policy intricacies. But th I think there is still a sort of lasting aversion to that kind of stuff in certain segments of the sort of conservative intellectual sphere because they associate any kind of sort of government assistance to families with left-wing policymaking. And I actually think the way to do conservative policy, family policy, is, is very distinct from the way to do progressive or left-wing family policy. And a perfect example of this is the difference between what the left wants, which is universal child care, versus what the right wants, which is child tax credits, maybe if you're Rubio, some kind of paid family leave, et cetera. The, it, at uh, sort of surface level, it looks like it's all just you know trying to pay out money to parents. But what the universal child care does is it basically hands off your children to government bureaucrats to raise them for you while you can work longer hours. That's the left-wing view, um, which you know is part of this larger left-wing project of wanting the government to raise your children. Um, and and the, the conservative view is actually to put more money in your pocket so that you can raise your children yourself. That's a pretty radical difference, and it comes from very, very different first principles. And if you sort of build out those, those distinct first principles, you're going to get a very different kind of family policy program. But that's just a long way of saying there is a conservative way to do family policy. It doesn't have to radically grow the federal government. And I think if we're talking about our priorities in terms of cutting federal government spending, there are a lot of other things we should look at. I think a few more dollars on children is probably okay. Probably a pretty good idea. And it, and it strikes me we'll maybe save this for the next time we have you on. We look forward to having you on many times over the years. It strikes me that getting that policy right or largely right not only will help to achieve the obvious, which is stabilizing families, but also helping to revitalize institutional life to sort of connect the dots in our conversation. Final two questions are advice questions by you to the audience. The first of them is what book or books or essays were really formative for you as, as an aspiring writer, someone who's become a conservative that you would recommend? Well, there's, I mean, there's a sort of, there's the pantheon of of conservative authors that every young conservative reads. So, you know, Edmund Burke's Reflections of Revolutions in France, sort of founding document of, of Anglo-American conservatism. Russell Kirk, who is the, the American conservative who sort of revitalized Burke's legacy, um, has, has a, a number of different books that, that you should read. Everyone should read 
Buckley's old essays for National Review. I think the the sort of two picks that are slightly lesser known that I would I really would encourage every young conservative or any conservative to read is Robert Nisbet's Quest for Community, who is Robert Nisbet was probably the greatest conservative sociologist in American history, maybe with the exception of Tocqueville. Um, and what what Nisbet does, which is really fantastic, is he gives a communitarian defense of limited government, which I think is really important now because we're having all these debates about within conservatism about not just the role of government but individualism versus communitarianism. And Nisbet, better than anyone that I am aware of, bridges the gap between the two and talks about why limited government is necessary for rich civil society and communities. Um, the other one is Michael Oakeshott, who's a British political philosopher, and I'm contractually obligated to, to, to talk about him because I wrote my thesis on him. Um, but uh, his book, Rationalism in Politics, is to me the best indictment of not just central planning um, and not in a sort of ideological libertarian sense, but just in the, the idea that you can't ever fully plan a, a human society the way that you want, but also the sort of anti-traditionalism that you see on the left. Um, it's a little bit denser than the quest for community, but I think every young conservative should start with Burke, Russell Kirk, Buckley, all the classics. But once you get past that, you should move on to, to Nisbet and Oakeshott. Those are excellent. Fully endorsed, <laughs> by the way. Love Nisbet. Um, the quest for community was very formative in my second generation thinking of, mm -hmm. as, as, a, as a lifelong conservative. That is after my neocon days. <laughs> there, there's we some all connections there. Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> Talk about the neocons another time. Pick that fight uh, some other day. Uh, last question. What do you say to the devil's advocate or to someone who really is critical of the United States? The country's too far gone. You're on a fool's errand. I'm just going to go about my life and let you political types go fight a fight that's worthless. I think the United States is arguably the only country in the world where our worst critics would prefer to stay here. Uh, and I think that's probably the best indictment uh, of, of our worst critics, both on the left and on a certain segment of the right now, is – all of the people who sort of pine for a different country have – most of them have the ability to, to leave and they don't. And I think not only is that an indictment of all these critiques of America, but it's also an indictment of uh, these specific people and also uh, a defense of America. So I could go on a long flowery diatribe about why this is the greatest country in the history of the world, which I still believe to be to be 100 percent true. But I would just also say that there's a reason that you know, millions, if not billions of people want to come here. And even the people here who seem to hate everything about this country don't want to leave. Well said. Nate Hockman, my friend, patriot, young conservative. Thanks for being here. That was a great. Thanks, Kevin. Hope you enjoy that as much as I did. You can follow Nate's work at nationalreview.com against your better judgment. If you're on Twitter, <laughs> you can follow him there, but definitely go to National Review, support him, support them. Most of all, thanks for taking time out for this conversation. We will be back next week with someone else who is also making a difference for the American future. Take care. The Kevin Roberts Show is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. The executive producer is Crystal Kate Bonham. The producer is Philip Reynolds. Sound design by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and Tim Kennedy. For more information and to subscribe, please visit heritage.org.